Welcome to Authors Annotated, a Gwinnett County Public Library podcast where we chat with authors about their work, their creative processes, and their love of libraries. My name is Steve, and I am the manager of the Grayson Branch. My name is Manor, and I'm a library associate at the Norcross Branch. And I'm Melissa, the manager of the Lilburg Branch. Our guest today is Jeffrey Breslow. He's the author of A Game Maker's Life and is a preeminent toy and game inventor and designer. He had spent more than 41 years inventing toys and games. Russell was inducted into the National Toy Hall of Fame in New York City in 1988 and left the toy business in 2008 to sculpt full-time. Jeffrey, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I appreciate it. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Well, yeah. I mean, how much time do you have? Basically, I got into the toy business just kind of by accident. I was a very poor student in high school, and I went to a small college, and I was flunking out, actually. I was on something called terminal probation, and I really wanted to go to University of Illinois because that's where all my friends went. But I went there one weekend, and I walked into the Fine and Applied Arts Building, and there was a display of industrial design. And I didn't even know what industrial design was at that time. It was a long time ago. And there was the instructor Ed Zagorski's name in the corner. And there was a door across the way. His name was on there. I knocked. And in 20 minutes, he changed my life. He told me about design. He was kind of this hippie guy, long hair and sandals. And he had no idea what kind of effect he had on me. But I walked out of there. Basically, he said that design is about form following function. Okay. It's got to work. And then it can look beautiful. If you design a beautiful chair and it's not comfortable to sit in, it's a terrible design, you know. So that was the mantra, form follows function. And I walked out of there and said, I need to be an industrial designer, okay? So I went back to school and I started studying. I made the dean's list so I can transfer. And then I had to start over as a freshman. So the first year and a half of college, my first, my folks weren't happy. I was on terminal probation. Now I had to start college over again, okay? But that's what it was. And it took me a year to get into Ed's class. He only taught sophomore. And we did a toy project. And it just kind of blew me away. And what happens in design is that it's jury graded. In other words, it's subjective. So there's five faculty that grade your work, not one person. And my toy project, it was children's furniture. And I built a full-size prototype and it pivoted and it was an easel, a stool, a chair, and it came in second. Okay. First place was a little blue box with a probe and a buzzer and jagged things. And you put the thing in there and it buzzed. This was John Spinello. And everybody loved this little box. And I said to John, what are you going to do with that? He said, well, I have an uncle that works with this guy, Marvin Glass in Chicago, and they're a toy design company. They're kidding me, you know. Anyhow, long and short, John graduated ahead of me, went to see Marvin for a job. Marvin wasn't hiring. And he said, I'll give you $500 for the box. And John sold the box for $500. At that time, that was more than a semester tuition at the University of Illinois if you lived in state. The box went on to become operation. And John kind of never forgave himself, but it could have been nothing. You know, I mean, that's what I knew. I wanted to be a toy designer. And I read everything about Marvin that was in the library. There were periodicals. This is pre-computer. And I spent the whole evening going through files and magazines and everything. And I said, I want to work for this guy. I didn't quite understand him. He sounded like a wild, crazy guy, but I made up my mind. That's what I wanted to do. And when I graduated, he wasn't hiring. And I ended up designing medical equipment and supplies for two years, kept me out of Vietnam. And all I did was design toys and games at night for that day when I hoped I would get an interview. And that was April 11th, Tuesday, 10 o'clock in the morning, 1967. Pretty important day, you know, and I got hired and I had no idea what the job was. You know, I didn't ask any questions. I 
went through my interview. He offered me a job and I walked out of there and my folks said, well, do you have medical insurance? I said, I don't know. Do you have vacation? I don't know. Do you have an office? I don't know. I was so excited. I got the job. I really didn't ask any questions. So that was the beginning of my 41 year career. Wow. That is quite a start to a career. It is. For somebody who you know, was flunking out of college, I would say it was quite a turnaround for me. But it was really, Zagorski was my second mentor. My first mentor was my only A in high school. That was art class, Hazel Lowe. And Zagorski ended up becoming my mentor. And he mentored me for over 60 years. We were dear friends. He died a year and a half ago at 99 and a quarter. Okay. And he said, if you ask a little kid, I'm three and a half, I'm four and three quarters. He said, when you get over 90, you can start using fractions again, is what he told me. So he didn't quite make a hundred, but he changed my life. And uh, actually, and he sent me people later on when I was running the company, he said, I got this terrific kid. I think it'd be a good toy designer. And he came and I hired him and he ended up becoming a partner. And then he became the managing partner when I left the company. So over the years, Sigorsky had the right idea of who I should hire and sent me people. He sounds like quite the mentor and quite the person that was a major influence in your life. Without a question. I mean, the single most important. Now, Marvin mentored me for seven years. That was the guy who started the toy design company. And he died pretty early at 59. And then my last mentor was a sculpture teacher. When I started sculpting full-time, I got a teacher and she mentored me for four years. So I'm lucky. I mean, most people don't have a mentor. I had four, which was quite extraordinary. And I actually got involved in a mentoring program in Champaign years later. I went down there and spent time with students talking about mentorship and, and what it involves and everything else. Now, as a librarian, my ears, you know, perked up a little bit when I heard you say you went to the library and you did some research with those periodicals. I mean, don't pay to do it. I mean, if you look it up in styles and you pull out books of bound magazines, you tell somebody, yeah, the young person today, they can't comprehend that. They just touch up a button, they can find anything they want in a second. So, but I spent a couple evenings, the entire evening at the library, trying to find out information about Marvin Glass. And I was able to find some articles, Saturday Evening Post and a couple of other ones, but it took time. You know, it, it wasn't something that happened easily. It's just that you're looking up and they had to be bound in these big leather bound magazine, you know, I mean, so different, you know. I mean, the sad part is you really can do all the research by yourself now, pretty much on your computer in a second. It's a little different. It is a little different, but we still can help facilitate that a little bit. Um, no, no, things change. And yeah. change, change for the toy business, you know, it changes everything. Do you have any earlier memories of the library? Well, I mean, I had a library card as a kid. Everybody did. I went there and, and took books out, you know, and I loved reading early on, but I loved reading nonfiction. I mean, even to this day, I would say 90% of all the stuff I read is nonfiction. I read philosophy, religion you know, psychology, memoirs, biographies. But once in a while, I still grab fiction, but not that often. And what writing the book taught me is how difficult it is to write fiction. Nonfiction is easy. I'm telling a story that I live. I had to recall it and everything else. But if you start making up stuff from scratch, you know, like Harry Potter, I mean, my gosh, what an imagination. How do you do that? Writing the memoir gave me a greater appreciation for people who are fiction writers. And like toys or like anything else in the creative world, if you're a writer, you can write. You don't always write a good thing or not one that sells, but you write another one. You design another toy. You make another painting. You make another 
some music. So if you're a creative person, you can create. But the creative world is built on failure. And you have to understand that. It's a big part of it. And, and some people don't quite understand that. And they're not being in the creative world. It's not that easy. But if you look at books, toys, games, music, theater, movies, television, failure, 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 failure. I mean, it's, that's how it works. Now, if you're a surgeon or a accountant or a, or a lawyer, you can't fail too often, you know. But the creative world allows that. Not only does it allow that, it's an important part of the process. It, it takes a certain type of person. And creative people are motivated by something different. They're not motivated by money, you know. I mean, they're motivated by the audience applauding you. They're motivated by you, you bring a toy or a game in the show, the president of a toy company, and he says, that's terrific. He says, that's terrible. Next. You know, I mean, that's what motivates you. You know, you do an art show and, and you know, you don't sell a painting. You go back and start painting again. It's a very important part of the creative process. And you can't say to somebody, I'm going to double your salary. Now be more creative. It just doesn't work that way. What's the first game that you remember playing? Well, the first game I remember playing was a little basketball game with a ping pong ball. It was a company in Chicago, and you pulled these little things back in the spring, popped the ball out of the little court into a basket. Okay, and that's what it was called. It was, not, I'm trying to think of the name of the company, but it was a very early game. And of course, Monopoly, and the thing about Monopoly is it was just a standard in a time. Nobody understood what it meant. I mean, I didn't know what a monopoly was. I knew it was the same. Three colors, yellow, and I wanted to get those. And the ones that were maroon, I didn't want those. Those were lousy property. But it didn't make any sense early on. And it actually, monopoly, if you came out with it today, it would never sell. It sells because of its history. It just does. It's actually not a very good game, really. It takes too long. But it was done at the time of the Depression, and you had all this money to play with. And it was a huge success for Parker Brothers. Yeah, we introduce our own family rules to it that puts a timer on it, basically, so that like as another piece like moves around the board whenever you get doubled, I think, and then when it gets to the end, the game's over, no matter what's happening. So. I can't remember the last time I played Monopoly because of the fact that it takes too long. It's still sitting underneath my bed collecting dust. Not a great game. It just isn't. I mean, compared to what's out there today, a game like Rummy Cube or, you know, I can I rattle off lots of games that are more fun, you know, but it's the standard. And, you know, what they do now with licensing cities and football tank. Teams, Monopoly, and everything else. Parker Brothers, the original founder, would have turned over in their grave if they knew that what they did to that, made it a license instead of just the pure Monopoly game. But you have to do that. You mentioned you mentioned Marvin Glass earlier. Can you elaborate on who he was in the toy industry and how he was important to you in particular? Marvin Glass was a Steve Jobs kind of character, okay? And by that, I mean, the only thing that matters is work, 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 okay? Family didn't matter. Marriage didn't matter. Sports, recreation, vacations, nothing mattered. It was just about working. And when I read Isaacson's book on jobs, I said that was Marvin Glass. But Marvin was in a small industry that had no connection to the public, unlike jobs. But Marvin started manufacturing toys in the 50s. And he kept losing his ass. I don't want to do that anymore. He looked at the record business. He looked at the book business and said, I want to do that in the toy business. I want to design toys, license them for a royalty to a toy company. And at that time, was very, it was unheard of because the toy companies were started by designers or people who had an idea for a game. Example, Mattel was started by Ruth and Elliot Handler. And Elliot Handler was an industrial designer, and he designed the toys. And Ruth was the businesswoman, and they started this company in the 50s. And they had a daughter by the name of Barbie and a son by the name of Ken. And that's how. So to go sell licensed Mattel, they said, we have our own designers. What do we 
going to pay you for. So Marvin was able to establish it primarily with a company called Ideal Toys in the late 50s, okay? An Ideal License, Mr. Machine, Mousetrap Game, Robot Commando, King Zor, a lot of early ideas and toys that Marvin came up with. And that launched Marvin into the business of independent toy design. And then ultimately, he was able to attract all other customers, different toy companies, you know, after that. So that's who Marvin was. And he was, as I said, the same kind of character. Uh, Only work mattered to him. Okay. He was obsessed with work. And we worked Saturdays, you know, if the holiday fell on a Thursday, like Thanksgiving, we worked Friday and Saturday after Thanksgiving. He had no other life. So when you work for him, that was part of what you did. And uh, so the other thing he did that was pretty amazing, and I talked about this a little bit before, is that if you were there a week and you had a prototype of something, you brought it in. He never took something away from the show. If you had an idea, built a prototype, you brought it in and presented to vice president of the company, president of a toy company to get the reaction. And if you brought it and he says, nope, don't like it next. Okay. (laughs) You left. Okay. But if he said, that's terrific. I love that. That's what you work for. So he didn't have to tell his designers to get busy. If you weren't in that conference room pitching an idea, meeting after meeting, you knew something wasn't quite right. So that's where the pressure came from. And I believe people, creative people, function under pressure. You have a meeting, a deadline, you have an art show, all of a sudden you're painting, things are happening. If a meeting was postponed for a week, it took us another week to finish the same work that we were going to show if the meeting was on time. So part of what he did was regulate the flow of pressure. You can't have meeting every day, but it goes up and down. But that's the driving force behind creativity, that you have a presentation coming. So he was a character. The other thing he did, in addition to bringing you in there, that made the most sense, if he realized you were somebody who was coming up with ideas and you were a creative person that could generate ideas, he ultimately made you a partner in the company. It's no different a law firm. If you're in a law firm and you're bringing business in, the law firm makes you a partner. Otherwise, you say, you know what? I'm going to go start my own law firm. So a designer would say, you know, I know how to make things, toys, games, dolls, this and that. Maybe I can start my own design company. So he was smart enough to give you a piece of the business so you didn't go anywhere. That's what he did to me and did to my other partners. And do you feel like it was important that he would give you the credit? You know, you're the one that's presenting it. Is that good for the designer's self-image? He's not taking the credit from it. If it's your idea, you get the credit for it, okay? And that's what, why would he take the credit away from you? He was smart enough, you know, it's your idea. And we were very, part of the industrial design training is learning how to build things. You have a shop course, machinery, tools, everything, and you make prototypes. So we were very good at making prototypes. So we never made a drawing of a toy. In other words, we, we showed a physical model, doll, game, toy, vehicle, ride-on. We built it, okay? And the only thing we had was time. We had no material cost. It was, you know, just little stuff. It was just our time, what we were spending our time on, and that was what was important. So he understood that, and we never made a drawing of a toy. If you made a drawing, the guy said, okay, make it. Let me see what it, let me see what it feels like, plays like, uh, you know, all the rest of that. So we skipped the drawing stage. I just built it. I had an idea for a game. I built a prototype of it. So a board, this, a plastic game, so you can sit and play it, which was important. So in the book, you compare the toy design business to the movie business. Can you talk about how the two industries are similar? Well, as I said, they're both built on failure. Okay. I mean, a film studio makes 20 films. Two of them succeed. 18 go down the drain. And they have a great writer the best actor, the best director, and it still doesn't make it. There's no way to test, okay, 
for stuff in the creative world. It just doesn't happen. So that's the similarity between our business and the toy business. We would generate in the course of a year, because we had a book, we had to write down the idea. Now you're spending time on the idea. And you didn't want to spend too much time on one idea. Because in the course of a year, we would generate 700 ideas for toys, games, and dolls. I mean, that's an awful lot. We'd probably build prototypes of 150. We, we'd license maybe 30. And five or six or seven would pay for all of it, okay? <laughs> exactly like a film studio. I mean, if you look at films, how many film TVs, how many, how many television shows, most of them go down the drain. You, you talk about the ones that are successful. Okay, you could talk about that. You know, this movie, this TV show. But how many never even saw the light of day? They were filmed, made, everything, and they never got released. And that's much more than we spent on a prototype of a toy or a game. But that's the nature of the business. That's the good news and the bad news. But the good news is that you can dream. You can dream, and, and you don't start working on something unless you think this is going to be the best movie, the best TV show, the best book, the best toy or game ever made. That's what drives you. And at some point, you say, well, maybe it's not such a good idea. I'll start another one. It, it, no different than an author writing a book. I mean, a very successful author. You know, even Rowling's, when she got out of Harry Potter, she wrote some book that was didn't do very well. You know, I mean, so you, you can do the creative thing, but you have to understand that most of it doesn't work out. That's all. I mean, that's a good example. Harry Potter that they said, we publish Harry Potter so that we can also publish these books of poetry that sell nothing. <laughs> but we get all this money from Harry Potter so we can also publish this other stuff. Okay. Yes. I mean, that's what it is. I mean, I walked when I started working because I really didn't know what I was going to do. And I didn't have kids. I didn't have nieces or nephews. I never bought toys. I mean, I had some toys as a kid, but there wasn't the abundance that there is today. But I went into Toys R Us. I got hired on a Tuesday, Wednesday morning. I was at a local Toys R Us walking up and down the aisles. And I was there for hours. And finally, the manager came to me. He said, can I help you? I said, I just got this job with this toy designer company, and I'm just doing a little research. And these toys on the shelf, I showed them, these are, they came from Marvin Glass, okay? And he said, take your time. You can spend all the day. So I was there every day. I saw him the next morning, the next morning. That was my preparation for going to work. And if I had to be working for me and they were in a little slump, I said, take the afternoon off, go to Toys R Us and, and spend time there. And then you'll come in, you'll come with ideas. That's how it works. What are some of the games that you created or worked on that our listeners might be familiar with? There's the games that our company did and the games that I personally did, okay, they're all kind of lumped together. But some of the ones on the cover of the book, Simon, for example, was my partner, Howard. Okay, and I'll talk about him in a second. I did Gestures, which is a one-card charade game. And actually, Ellen DeGeneres had it on her show. She built a giant one. It was because I like charades, but it was you couldn't play if you made up the movie, the, the whatever. So this was one word and a little mechanical device. Operation I talked about, I did Masterpiece, which was a huge success for me. We did Evil Knievel, Uno Attack. We didn't do Uno, but we did Uno Attack, a mechanical device that spits out. So we worked in properties that weren't ours necessarily. We did things that were tied to Barbie, Hot Wheels, you know, all kinds of other things. But Simon was my partner, Howard Morrison, who I spent a lot of, most of my time on games. My other partner, Ruben Terzian, did dolls, mechanical dolls. Howard did everything. He was the most amazing toy designer there ever was. I mean, he did games, dolls, toys, ride-ons, vehicles, plush. I mean, he just had an imagination. He was just, sadly, he's about 90 now and kind of slipping a little bit, but he was just brilliant. And Simon was his. We did that in the mid-70s, and we knew 
we knew that was going to be huge. Most of the time, you don't know because it was the first real electronic game. It was run by a Texas instrument chip. It lit up and made sounds. It did things that just intrigued the player because it was totally different than anything that was out there. You know, it, the four tones are kind of bugle tones. It's basically the blue button is an E, the yellow button is a C sharp, the red is an A, and the green is an E and the lower octave. And any way you play those four buttons, it sounds melodic. It's like a trumpet. And we ended up having a meeting with Steven Spielberg a long, long time ago. And he had the uh, close encounters of the third kind. We heard that he thought we got the idea from the game for the movie. And we thought he got the idea of the movie for the game. And I don't know that either one of those happened. But we went there not talking about Simon Gave at all. The idea was that maybe we do toys that he put in movies down the road and nothing worked out. It was kind of fun having a meeting with him, but nothing, nothing came of it. But I don't know if you remember the movie Close Encounters of Third Kind, but the spaceship lands and it's playing those tones and, and the people on Earth are communicating with the spaceship by those four tones, just like Simon. It was interesting. It's funny that you were having that conversation because then, I mean, just right after that, you know, George Lucas makes a deal with some little toy company and then toys explode with movie tie-ins <laughs> with Star Wars. I know Manor has a follow-up about electronics. I do want to say a quick story real quick that I, when I saw Uno Attack on the cover of this book, I almost just threw it across the room because we have just a personal story between my mother-in-law torturing me with that game. And so I'm like, how dare he create this game and have my mother-in-law torture me. <laughs> no attack. That, and then there's some version of sorry that Yell throws things at you too. And I was, uh, uh. it was a giant success. I'm oh yeah, no, it, 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 it's a fun game. It's just, she just, yeah, it was just a, you know, one of those stories that you get <laughs> caught up in with your family. So. We take Uno very seriously in my household, but we've never gotten Uno attack before. So I think I might need to pick it up and just ruin my familial relationships even more. You, well, you can have my mother-in-law's copy. <laughs> The whole idea of the game is to get rid of your cards. So now you get, you make a play and then you push this button and nothing happens. And you turn the machine to the next player and the next player makes a play, pushes the button and spits three or four cards out at him, you know, and then you turn it to the next one. So it's kind of a Russian roulette with cards coming at you and you're trying to get rid of those cards, you know. My partner, Don Rosenwinkel, did that one. And when he did it, we were just laughing. It was just a very funny thing of the machine spitting the cards at you. It's definitely a good way to keep the game fresh, as if Uno doesn't ruin relationships enough. And then Uno Flip also ruins relationships, but right. the attack also makes it just like it's just top tier. <laughs> okay, so how did the introduction of electronics change the toy and game world? Well, it changed it tremendously. Okay, and the first big change is that our consumer, little boys and little girls, were playing with something else. They had a pad, a phone, a computer, a video game. So we lost our consumer at an earlier age. You know, a 12-year-old, 14-year-old would sit down and play board games and everything. Now, the board games have come back again, especially with COVID. People are staying home. You know, I have a problem with video games because it's solitary. Part of the game is learning how to lose, learning how to win, how to communicate with people. It's very socializing. The video games do something opposite. They put you in another world and stuff. There's a place for it, but it's different, okay? I still rather sit across from somebody. And, and a good game, in my opinion, is one that has a combination of skill and luck. Chess is a pure skill game. A mediocre player will lose to a good player every time. There's no luck. You don't get lucky at chess. But a good game is a combination of luck and skill. And how it works is if you win... You got lucky cards. If I win, I was skillful. Let's play again. Okay. <laughs> That's how you justify it. You know, you got better cards than me, so you won the game. But if I won, I was skillful in playing. 
it's just psychological part of games playing with people. So electronics is now with everything. Everything has electronics, makes music, it's changed quite a bit. And we were at the forefront in 1976 with, with Simon. He was the first, there was one other one that didn't too well, that Parker, but that was the first gigantic home game. So the toy business has changed. The other big change, aside from electronics and everything and losing our consumer in early age, the other big change is that the consolidation of companies, Hasbro owns Parker Brothers, Milton Bradley, Mattel owns a bunch of companies. So there are fewer customers for toy designers because of that. The next big change in the business is that the biggest toy retailer is Amazon. You can't walk up and down the halls in Amazon and, and look for something to pick out. Amazon works because you know what you want to buy. You're not browsing at Amazon. So that's missed. You go to the store at Christmas time and you buy things, maybe too many things. And, you know, I mean, you can pick up something, touch it, feel it. You can't do that. So that's a huge change. Amazon is now the biggest retailer of the books and toys and many other things. So those are those are some changes that happened within the toy industry. But there's still a place. I mean, my company, the thing I'm most proud of is that Big Monster Toys is still in business. You know, I think if you're a good executive for a company, the most important thing you do is make yourself replaceable. If you die and, and the company goes down the drain, you're a poor manager. I mean, look at Apple. Okay. I mean, who thought it would survive Steve Jobs? But he was not only a brilliant marketer, brilliant everything, but he was a brilliant manager because he had people so good there that when he was gone at a very early age, the business continued and flourished. So I have a lot of respect for him and what he did. And so when we started our new company, Big Monster Toys, the most important thing we did was make sure when we were gone that we had enough good people there that the company would survive, not only one of us, but all three of us. Myself, Ruben, and Howard, who started the company, all left at a certain point, and the company is still going on. You talked about skill versus luck, and that chess is almost all skill. And I always hated playing shoots and ladders with my kids because that's all just luck. It's just whatever. You can't do anything active except pull a card and do what it says. <laughs> it's still a very good game for kids. Well, I think we're going to veer off back to the book a little bit. Sure. But we're going to talk more a little bit about real-world situations. And we do want to provide a content warning here because we're going to touch upon a situation involving gun violence. And if you have little ones or you want to skip this part of the conversation, please skip the podcast ahead five minutes or so. So the introduction of the book starts with the story readers maybe wouldn't expect. Could you tell us why you chose to start it off that way and how those events impacted you? Well, to answer the first question, a part of my life that was so dramatic and a part of the company's life that was so dramatic. Myself and my editor felt it was important to, to at least talk about that at the very beginning. So you had some idea. This wasn't just a book about fun and toys and games. It, it was a book about my life and defining my life. You don't eliminate that sort of thing from a life that I had. And, you know, 99.9% of my life was joyous and fun and you know, everything. I mean, it was an amazing thing. I had a job that I loved, you know, every day. And I'm very lucky that I did that. But that being said, we still had a workplace shooting, which was beyond traumatic. Number one, the shooter was a guy that worked for me for seven years. And my partner knew him at another company and brought him in. So this was not a stranger that walked in off the street. This was somebody that worked for us. He was an electrical engineer. He had worked on a project with another designer and they'd just come back from New York. Client loved it. They went out to celebrate. They had a couple beers because 
It was well received. And the next day this happens. So there was no there was no indication of anything. I mean, we had 60 people working for us. It was a very big company at that time. And the partners had a meeting every morning. There were nine or 10 of us at the time. Marvin had died a couple of years before. There were nine or 10 of us that attended the meeting. And the meeting kind of broke up a few minutes early. There were three of us left in the meeting. I was there with my two partners. And the receptionist said, there's a call. And it was a not important call. You know, I could have said, take a message. But I said, all right, put it in the hall across the corridor. And there was an office across the corridor. It was our patent attorney's hall. And he wasn't in. And so I just left the meeting. And then I heard the shots. And I wasn't scared because it just sounded like a noise. I didn't think it was gunshots at all. Just boom, 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 boom. It, it wasn't something that was scary. So I said to Jim Salem, who called me, hold on. And I walked back across and the back door was open. And I know I closed the door, which didn't make sense to me. It was wide open. And when I walked in, Anson was slumped in his chair. He shot him twice in the face with a nine millimeter. And Joe, he shot in the chest three times. And he looked at me and just fell on the couch and he died on the way to the hospital. The fact that he was an employee of ours, a seven-year employee, was the most difficult thing of all. Nobody had any idea what was going on in his head. I mean, I sat in the office where I took the phone call. I never went in the back because I knew it was over. Somebody, there was, there was no more danger at that point of anything else. So I, I sat in the office where I had taken the call and I called my wife. I called my father and said, you're going to see something on television, but I'm okay. You know, it's all over. And then Joe DeLeonardi, who was chief detective in Chicago at that time, was there. I ended up becoming managing partner because nobody wanted the job of running the business. And the one guy who wanted it, nobody wanted him. So I was the youngest one. I was 33, 34 years old. And I got the job of running the business by default. Nobody else wanted it. I had no choice. They said, we're going to vote for you when you have to take the job. And I was lucky enough to find somebody who had group experience with some psychologist, psychiatrist. And he came one day and he said, I'll stay as long as you need me. And what he said was, you have to talk about where you were, why you survived over and over and over again. It's the only way you can go on. We had a thriving business. We couldn't close the business. I mean, we had 60 employees. We probably were supporting family and kids, close to 200 people with this business. So we couldn't just close the business. It started up slow, but the good news is Simon came along right after that, and it gave us a huge in terms of the business and everything else. So that's the story. It's something that happened, and I didn't want to define it on the cover, but it's certainly a part of the business, part of my life, part of everything. This is the present. Right now, I'm talking to you. What happened yesterday is gone, okay? It's okay to have a memory of your life and your past, but not live there. Live in the moment today, and that's what I do every day. Thank you for sharing your story. And I do think it's important you explained yourself in detail like that, just because it is something that happens. But we are going to wrap things up on okay. a lighter note and just focus on the importance of play in people's life, no matter what age, because we believe in play too. And your whole life was surrounded by play. So can you tell us about that? Well, it defines kids growing up. I mean, very young kids play with toys in a selfish way. They want to protect the toy and everything else. I've been talking about very young kids. But then play becomes part of learning how to win and lose at things, you know? If you're ultimately at a young age. Now, if you're going to go into sports, you're not going to win all the time. You have to learn how to lose 
graciously and do it again. And that's what games do for people, is teach you lessons in that, to teach you how to get along with people in a format that is comfortable playing a game. So games are important to learn how to lose. You're not going to win all the time in life. It just doesn't happen that way. Life isn't that way. And if that's how you socialize yourself, there's mistakes. So I think games, especially games, toys at an early age, but even toys to share. I had one guy who interviewed me and he talked about evil Knievel toys. He said he and his brother fought over the toy because they only had one of it. They were, you know. And I said, well, you must be in your early 50s. He said, I am. And that was a very popular toy. That means you can get two of them. But so now you got to share that. So toys and games are like very important life lessons. And I think that the more you play games with your kids and the more you teach them, it's okay to lose, come back and try it again. You can win next time and be gracious when you lose. It is a very important life lesson, I believe. Jeffrey, thank you so much for speaking with us for the podcast. Listeners can learn more by reading your book, A Game Maker's Life, a Hall of Fame game inventor and executive tells the inside story of the toy industry, which you can find at your local Gwinnett County Public Library branch or at your local favorite bookstore. And there's lots more in there that we didn't talk about here, lots of other stories to get into. So Jeffrey, thank you again so much for coming on. Thank you. It was delightful. I'm glad to talk with you. Thank you for listening to Authors Annotated, a podcast from Gwinnett County Public Library about authors, their work, their creative processes, and their love of libraries. Thanks again to Jeffrey Preslow for the fun conversation. You can find out more about the library's podcasts at gwinnettpl.org slash podcasts or follow them in your podcast app of choice. Thanks for listening. Connect, learn, and grow with your Gwinnett County Public Library.